Now we're going to get into the actual Gospel of Luke, and we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and this is the first division. There are four divisions to the Gospel of Luke, and the first one is the birth and childhood of John and Jesus. This is chapters 1 through chapter 4, verse 13. So although Luke chapter 1 through 2 introduces a narrative centered above all on Yahweh and the fullness of salvation that he will bring in Jesus, the story of Jesus' birth does not really introduce this God or this salvation. The events of Jesus' birth are linked to Yahweh's past salvific acts, meaning that he's not exactly totally beginning the Gospel of Luke by focusing on what Christ is going to do to save the world, the death and resurrection, but focusing back on what God has done in the past in the First Testament and how Christ is tapping into that and will fulfill those promises of salvation redemption. The First Testament quotations in Luke's book show that the proper beginning for Yahweh's story of redemption of humanity and creation does not begin with the birth and ministry of Jesus, but rather in the First Testament. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, where God creates the world that is good, and then that goodness is lost in the fall, and then God begins to make promises to redeem the world, specifically through Abraham, that will then be carried out by Jesus. In Luke chapter 1-2, through Luke is more interested in showing that the events of Jesus' life are not a new story or plan of redemption, but a continuation of the original work that Yahweh began in the First Testament. The God who was at the work long ago is still at work now, especially through Jesus. Jesus is not a new plan of redemption, a new thing in history. He is the long-awaited plan of God's redemption and the continuation fulfillment of that. Now, in these first two chapters of Luke, the dominant feature of the literary structure is the parallelism before between is the parallelism between John and Jesus and the juxtaposition of their birth announcements and births. What Luke is going to begin to do is intertwine the announcement, the birth, and the early life of John and Jesus. Luke's gospel covers the birth and the early life of John and Jesus in a way that no other gospel does. We get more detail, more information here than the other gospel writers give. You can see this parallel between John and Jesus and the fact that Luke is going to cover the same material for both of them. For both John and Jesus, there's an introduction to their parents. There's an angelic visitation that gives an annunciation of the birth of John and Jesus. Both the mothers, Elizabeth for John and Mary for Jesus, respond to that announcement. Then there's the actual telling of their birth. Then there's the circumcision, the naming of that child. Then there's a prophetic response where a prophet comes in and responds to the birth of these two children. And then we see the growth of the child. There are very strong similarities here that begin to emphasize this. Now, the reason that Luke is focusing so much on these two is because these are the two most major prophets since the First Testament. So remember... In the First Testament, towards the very end of Israel's life as a nation, under the kings, they were committing the two major sins of injustice, idolatry, and national injustice. And this was so horrific and severe and widespread that God began to send prophets 
that announced the coming of the exile. And they ignored those prophets over and over and over again. These prophets foretold the coming of the exile, and then eventually the Assyrians in 722 came and took Israel in the north into exile, and then the Babylonians in 586 BC came and took Judah in the south into exile. Now, the Jews during Jeremiah's time said, well, the exile could never happen because we have the temple and God's glory, Shekinah glory of God dwells there. Nothing could ever happen to us when God is here with his temple. But Ezekiel answered that because Ezekiel had a vision in chapter 1 of the glory of Yahweh actually leaving the temple, of leaving the temple, leaving the nation of Israel and exiting completely. This meant that the temple became just a building and the nation became just a nation. And then the Babylonians can come and destroy it because God wasn't there anymore. Therefore, it wasn't Babylonians versus God. It was Babylonians versus Israel who had abandoned God and God had left them so they would go into exile. So that's exactly what happened. So during this entire time of the prophets foretelling the coming of the exile for Israel's sins, they were also prophesying the hope of God bringing his Messiah and bring, who would bring the redemption of humanity. These prophecies focus mostly on the idea of a messianic king, a military warrior king who would sit on the throne of David. And he would come from the line of David and he would establish a new Jerusalem, the new Israel. And he would establish God's cosmic mountain on earth in Jerusalem. And he would go out and destroy all the enemies of Israel, destroying all evil in the world. And he would therefore eliminate all evil and all sin, atoning for it and forgiving Israel's sins and bring them all out of exile back into the promised land where they would dwell on the cosmic mountain with, with Yahweh in the kingdom of God. And all the nations and all people from the world would come flooding in. This means that the glory of Yahweh would return and dwell with them in a way that was more full than even in the tabernacle or temple. And all this was marked and began with the Israel coming back out of exile back to the promised land. Seventy years later, when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and 536 BC led them back to the promised land, they began to rebuild the temple. And when the temple was rebuilt, they anticipated in fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision in chapters 40 through 42 that God's glory would enter into the temple and the Messiah would come and all these prophecies would begin to be fulfilled. However, when they built it, the glory of God did not return. And it didn't return. It didn't return later that week. It didn't return in the next month. It didn't return in the next year. It didn't return in the next decade, nor in the next century. And as time went on, they began to realize that even though they had returned back to the promised land, they were still in exile. They were in spiritual exile. And Zechariah comes along, the prophet, and makes it very clear that spiritual exile, true exile, would not end until Israel truly repented of their sins and trusted God, put their faith in him. Because even though they returned from exile, even though they had been punished, they were still committing the same sins, still not trusting God, and nothing had really changed with them. So around 431 BC, Malachi was the last prophet. And at that time, not only had the glory of God not returned, and now they were beginning to realize they were in spiritual exile, 
But now the prophets go completely silent, and they're silent for about 400 years. And so in the last 400 years, where the gospel looked be... So the time of John and Jesus showing up on the scene, for the last 400 years, the Shekinah glory of God has not been dwelling with them. There has been no word of God spoken to them through the prophets, and they're still oppressed by foreign powers. And so they are truly desperate, anticipating, awaiting the coming of the Messiah that will bring an end to their spiritual exile, their oppression under Rome, and bring the Shekinah glory of God, the cosmic mountain, New Jerusalem, all done through the Messiah. Luke is really emphasizing John and Jesus here because these are the first two prophets that they will have ever had in the last 400 years and they are the prophets that are going to break the silence. Specifically, John is going to break the silence. So when we get to the angel's announcement of John, and he gives John's purpose as the forerunner of the coming of the Messiah, who will begin the redemption of God's people, and then we get to the angel's announcement of Jesus, who is the Son of God, who will bring the redemption of humanity, Luke is making it very clear with these two prophets who break the silence of the last 400 years that this is the end of Israel's spiritual exile. This is the beginning of God establishing the new Jerusalem through John who breaks the silence and Jesus who establishes the kingdom of God. So these two figures are incredibly significant in Jewish history and in and, and biblical history, they're the ones that are going to begin the fulfillment of all the promises of God that are rooted all throughout the First Testament and that the Jews have been awaiting for for so long. Now, even though Luke is showing that John and Jesus are significant figures and that they're very similar as prophets with announcements from angels, who are going to execute Yahweh's plan of redemption, there are also very significant differences between them. Because even though they're similar as prophets, awaited prophets, Luke is going to make it very clear that they're different, specifically that Jesus is far superior to John in every way. This can be seen in four very specific things that Luke highlights as he interchanges between the two of them in these first two chapters. First, so the superiority of Jesus over John is seen first in the fact that Luke spends twice the amount of space on the announcement and birth and life childhood of Jesus than on John. And the law of proportion says that whatever you spend the most time on or talking about is the most important thing. So in this sense, Jesus is more important and superior to John because more time is given to him. Second, there are two prophetic responses given to Jesus' birth and only one given to John. So the fact that the, there are two prophetic responses for Jesus rather than one for John shows that Jesus is the emphasis here. Third, when the stories of John and Jesus converge in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56, where Mary comes and visits Elizabeth and the two pregnant women encounter each other, the focus is on Mary and her unborn child. And this is seen in the fact that not only does Elizabeth 
focus on Mary. Mary does not focus on Elizabeth. Elizabeth emphasizes that the boy is her Lord, not Mary the other way around, and that Elizabeth blesses and praises Mary for her birth, and that even John, the unborn John in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps out in joy towards the unborn boy Jesus, is emphasizing that Jesus is superior than John. And fourth is that John is to be the prophet of the Most High, the prophet who speaks on behalf of God, whereas Jesus is to be the Son of the Most High, meaning that he's connected to God into the same nature and essence. Now, remember, when the Bible says that he's the Son of the Most High or the Son of God, it's not saying that Jesus was born biologically to God, that he is the Son. There was a time that he did not exist. It's saying that he has the same essence. He's of the same nature, that they're both God. They're both the same thing ontologically or in their essence. And so to be the Son of God, the Son of God is a phrase that was used of Israel and even David and Moses But it is very clear in that context that they are like God in the fact that they speak on God's behalf. They they represent God to the people and rule in the name of God over the people. But by the time we get to the Second Testament, the Second Testament writers make it very clear that Jesus is not just the Son of God, as in like God because he represents God or works on God's behalf, but that he is the Son of God because he is the exact nature and essence of God of who God is. He is God. And so it's not a birth sense. It's the sameness sense. And this is made very clear in the fact that Jesus is going to do the things that God does. He's going to speak in the same way that God does. He's going to act in the same way that God does. He's going to be expect the same honors that God does. He's going to do the same miracles of God. And he's going to demand the same reverence as God. So he sees himself very much as God, the same essence. And then he's going to act like God in the same essence. And then when we get to John, we're going to be told that in the beginning was word and the word was with God and the word was God, meaning Jesus was God. And that all things came into existence through the word Jesus, meaning that he's always been God. And then Hebrews is going to make it very clear that the Son of God is God in the same essence, the exact nature of God, since with God is the glory of God and rules like God. All these things make it clear that he is the same essence. So where John represents and speaks on behalf of God, the prophet, Jesus is God in the same essence. So these things... And there will be some other minor ones. There will be other ones that we'll talk about when we get into these stories. But these four things are the major things that emphasize the differences between Jesus and John, specifically the superiority of Jesus to John. Luke demonstrates that the birth of Jesus is rooted in the salvation hopes of the First Testament by the fact that Mary and Zechariah specifically mention our ancestors Abraham. So Luke is going to intentionally tie Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth back into the First Testament stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these First Testament stories, showing you that they are fulfillment of Abraham's story, but that we should see God doing the same things in the life of John and Jesus as what we saw him doing in the life of Abraham and his descendants. So this similarity between John and Jesus 
So the way that God or the angel comes and announces the birth of Abraham's son and, and Isaac's son and, and others is very similar to the way that God comes and announces the birth of John and Jesus, showing that these are rooted in, connected to what God was doing in the First Testament. Second, there's a common idea of barrenness. Sarai, the wife of Abraham, was barren, and God miraculously gave her a child. And Rebecca was barren, the wife of Isaac, and God miraculously gave her a child. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was barren. God miraculously gave her a child. And later, we even see this with people like Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel. And for Samuel, where she is barren, and God miraculously gives her a child. And so God keeps doing this where he takes the dead womb of a woman and resurrects it into the life of a child. And this is God's M.O. when it comes to continuing the line of Abraham. And so the fact that we have the barrenness of Elizabeth and then he resurrects her womb and gives her a child, John. And though Mary is not barren, but it's impossible to have a kid because she's never slept with a man and that yet he gives her a child so to speak, out of barrenness, metaphorically speaking, is rooting you back in the First Testament that God is doing what he's always been doing. He is continuing the line of Abraham to redeem Israel, and even more specifically, in a virgin birth through Jesus. So at this point, you should expect God to do something miraculously when the barrenness of a woman is mentioned, because this is what he does. Third is that Luke portrays Zechariah and Mary as a type of Abraham, meaning that they're the beginning of something, and Zechariah and Elizabeth as a type of Sarah. And John is a type of Ishmael and Isaac. These similarities show that this is rooted in the First Testament. This First Testament connection can be seen with Genesis 27-49 and Daniel 7-10 through throughout all of Luke. Luke will constantly keep going back to this over and over and over again. So this division ends with John acting and preaching and ministering in a way that is very much like the prophets of the First Testament. And so he will be a prophet of the Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic Covenant, enforcing the ideas and the laws of that covenant. And so he will be the first prophet after the 400 years who breaks the silence, but he will bring an end to that Old Mosaic Covenant office of prophet. Jesus will then become the prophet of the new covenant, of the redemption of God for humanity, where John will represent the law working in the life of the nation and obedience to the law. Jesus will usher in the new covenant made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we are then adherent and obedient to the Holy Spirit that lives in us. John is the last prophet of the Mosaic Covenant who announces and prepares the way for Jesus, the prophet of the New Covenant. Jesus' anointing, genealogy, and testing show that he is the true Son of God who's come to fulfill the promises of Yahweh as spoken through the prophets. Luke sees the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower Jesus for his coming battle with Satan and the demonic powers beginning in his temptation. So the first section in the Gospel of Luke is chapters 1, 1 through 4. And in this section, Luke introduces his book and why he wrote it and how he's writing it. He says this, chapter 1, verse 1. 
Now many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. So it seemed good to me as well, because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things you were taught. So Luke makes it very clear that many people have already written accounts of Jesus' life, that there are many stories out there. Now, even though we only have four Gospels, and at the time of Luke, there's only two, Matthew and Mark, that doesn't mean that there, have, there aren't many stories out there circulating out. Many, 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 many people saw Jesus and witnessed his life and ministry and death and resurrection. And so there would be many stories out there. Probably many people have written things down, many things being told. Yet God, in his sovereignty, decided that only four Gospels would make it into the canon of the Bible. But Luke is saying, I'm going to write one too. Not probably in a sense of I can do it better than everybody else, but I'm going to have it, I have a different style, a different, different way of doing things. And in this time period where very few things are written down, it doesn't hurt to have more out there written down. The difference is where Mark is probably primarily from the perspective of Peter, and Matthew is primarily from the perspective of Matthew, Luke wasn't there. He didn't see Jesus' life. He did not experience the death and resurrection, most likely. And so he's completely dependent upon eyewitnesses, which means he's more likely to go out and interview tons of people and get the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, and all of the disciples, and many other people that are around, and get more of a comprehensive picture. In fact, Luke is the most comprehensive gospel out of them all. You know, there's a lot of people say that, hey, when somebody becomes a Christian, you should give them the gospel of John, because that's a good place for them to start. In my opinion, that's a horrible place to start. Now, don't get me wrong, it's God's word, and God's word is always a good place, and you can't go wrong there, but John is complicated. It is steeped in deep, complicated theology and themes, and he's more interested in the theology of who God is, and there's actually some passages like John chapter 14 through 17 that are incredibly difficult, so difficult, that a lot of pastors don't even preach on those chapters because they're challenging. Luke is actually probably the better gospel to go to. It is straightforward. And the thing is, is that Luke, he's not referencing First Testament prophecies and First Testament Jewish culture and ideas because he's not a Jew. And he's not writing to Jews. He's a Gentile. So he explains the cultural stuff or uses different words and a lot more what in a way that Matthew and Mark don't because they are Jews, writing to Jews who they assume understand all this stuff. His account is very logical, very detailed, and it's a lot more narrative story kind of a sense. This is what Luke is saying. I have I've done a lot of research. I've talked to a lot of people, and I've written this down. And then he says, I've written an orderly account. Now, this word orderly account doesn't mean that it's in chronological order. In fact, Matthew's order is more chronological than Luke's order. Luke isn't actually interested in chronology so much as Matthew was and Mark was, but he's more interested in this theme and an idea of Jesus moving 
towards Jerusalem in order to die. And we've already talked about that in the structure. The word orderly here means putting things in their proper place. Like when you think of orderly, yes, you can order things in alphabetical order, chronological or numerical order, chronological or date, chronological. But orderly can also be going into your kitchen and ordering your kitchen, putting the pots and pans and the silverware and the cooking dishes and the pampered chef stuff in a certain order or a certain place in a certain way in your kitchen. You're not arranging them in alphabetical order or in the order that you bought them. You're putting them in the order, the place that it seems most logical for where you would use it, close to the oven or close to the surface for cutting, close to the sink or um, the way that I use this more often, so I put it lower and easier to reach, or in this less often, so I put it higher and harder to reach. This is what he's talking about, or organizing your bedroom or your closet. I wrote this in an orderly way. There's a very specific order and intentionality, or carefully thinking about how I'm going to do things that he says here. He's also writing this Theophilus. And we already talked about who this guy might have been as a Roman official, possibly converted to Christianity, helping him understand Christianity, which as a Roman official, he'd be more disconnected from the Jewish Christian culture than anybody else who's converted in, or maybe even trying to convince them to exempt Christianity from persecution. But he says concerning the things about which you were instructed, this indicates that Theophilus knows something about Jesus because he's either interested in him or he has begun to follow him. So this is Luke's introduction to how he's writing. 